John chapter 14. <clears throat> excuse me, got to get the frog out of my throat. Starting at verse 1. <clears throat> Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody, no one, comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Now in our studies in John chapter 13, we spent a few weeks there, we saw a series of contrasts. And probably the key contrast, what everything was centered around, were verses 30 and 31. It says, having, now speaking of Judas, having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. And then we see the contrast of Christ, verse 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And the contrast is Judas going into outer darkness. Darkness, symbolic in the scriptures, of a godless existence. And we know that Judas went into eternity apart from God. And then verse 31, now, and it's going to be picking up the pace here. They're going to start getting some more, more specific lessons on the cross, on the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, and even eschatology, because Jesus is entering into glory. As Judas was going into the darkness, Jesus is entering into that marvelous light. Glory? Glory is the absolute holiness of God that demands the worship of mankind that is revealed in the light of God. It's going to be that which we will be living in as born-again believers for all of eternity. We're told in the book of Revelation that there's going to be no sun, there's going to be no stars, that the glory of God is going to illuminate that great city, Jerusalem. Jesus, well, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 tells us he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so the way that man sees the glory of God is simply through Jesus Christ. So from chapter 14 and on, the pace is picking up the way to the cross, God's journey, Jesus' journey to the glory, to be glorified. But now chapter 14, we have another contrast. Just as Jesus heads to the glory of the cross in dedicated obedience, now all of a sudden, we've seen this with Christ a few times, we have the apostles. Their hearts, their hearts are troubled. Again, verse 1, it's the only reason why Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You don't tell somebody to let their heart not be troubled unless they're troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And so what's got to be sticking in their mind? They're not understanding the whole process here of what's going on. It's obvious if you look over at verse 19 of the previous chapter, chapter 13, Jesus says, I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. In this chapter, in chapter 14, he's going to start bringing the Holy Spirit into the equation, who we know later on is going to give them understanding and application of the Lord and the ways of the Lord. And so in their mind, they're thinking, well, 
They've seen this betrayal or this concept of betrayal of Judas to denial. We were just told about the denial in verses 36 to the end of chapter 13, the denial by Peter, and then it's seemingly a, a farewell here that Jesus is leaving them. And again, again, keep in mind, and that's where the troubling of the heart's got to really come from, in that three years ago, they gave it all up. They gave it all up to come follow him. There was Peter and his brother. There was James and John, and they had their fishing business, probably John and James's father's business, but nonetheless, that was their livelihood. And Jesus just simply said, come follow me. And they followed through in obedience, but now all of a sudden, this great kingdom and all, because we see if entering into Acts chapter 1 that they're still not getting it at that point, but nonetheless, they're just not understanding. He's going to start this great kingdom, but now all of a sudden he's talking about being crucified. It's not making a lot of sense, and really it's got to be very troubling. It seems as if the apostles are finally getting it to a degree that he is going to be crucified. Christ is leaving, and again, their hearts are troubled. Troubled here means to be stirred up to a point of great mental distress. And so they're in great distress. Look at this distress. What is it that distresses you? I looked it up on the internet in case you were confused. What are the six greatest stresses of mankind? The, 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 the things that are, are, are really upsetting to people within our society? The top six, first is failure, next is death, next is rejection, next is confrontation, then loneliness, and then simply the unknown. Well, they're facing all of these right here. I mean, they've got to be in their own mind since Christ was going to establish this kingdom, them not understanding it again, that he's going to be crucified. There's failure. Death, well, Christ has just told them about his death. And again, they've got to be of the mindset. And I think this is what we'll see later on when they lock themselves in that upper room after Christ is crucified. They came for our leader and they killed him. We're going to be next on their list. And so they're stressed because of failure, death, rejection they're being rejected by the jews confrontation well when they take jesus that's the ultimate confrontation as they crucify him loneliness because jesus is going and then the unknown not knowing what their future is going to hold for them because in christ as christ was here as they were living their lives for him their their future was built upon him and now all of a sudden he says he's going away. Again, you've got to understand, they don't understand all the concepts and reality. We've got the word of God, but this is troubling to them. And so that's where Jesus is meeting them. He's meeting them in the midst of their troubled hearts. You ever had a troubled heart? We've all had a troubled heart. And so we should be able to relate from this or at least draw concepts from this to understand how Christ will meet us during the times that we are troubled. Now again, this is all built upon, now glory, the cross, we've used all these terms, but basically it's all built upon the grace of God. The grace of God that will meet you in your troubled times. Now, in meeting man in his distress, really what Jesus is going to be telling him, we're going to be looking at verses 2 and 3, trust, trust. He says, in my Father's house, well, before he says, believe in God, believe also in me. So he, he's stating this as God. In my Father's house are many mansions, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. 
and if I go, and so he's not saying, well, in case I go, he's saying, if I go, with the assurance that he is going, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so there's an assurance of that day and an assurance of the future as well. Now, an important point that can be surmised here is, is that Christians are going to become troubled at times. It doesn't mean that you've lost your faith. It doesn't mean that you don't have any faith. We're to be Christians. We're not to be Pollyannas that just think that, well, Doris Day, K. Sarah, Sarah kind of a thing. We have to face reality, and there's going to be hard. And God has created us to be people that have trusting hearts, to have loving hearts, but also have troubled hearts for whatever the reason may be. So we've seen the Lord's heart troubled quite a few times when he saw the death of Lazarus, when he saw the denial of Judas. And now we even can see, as we look at the scriptures in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, the Apostle Paul, and look at the degree to the Apostle Paul's heart and how it was troubled. He writes, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble. He's, he's wanting to relate these things to you because what is he wanting to do? He's wanting to comfort them with the same comfort that God had offered them in the midst of their trouble. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. This was something that was overwhelming and all-consuming. It says, yes, we have this sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, this was bigger than us, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us, so there's that necessary element of prayer, that thanks may be given by many persons on behalf of the gift granted to us through many. And so here's the Apostle Paul. He's overwhelmed with a very desperate situation. And what is he doing? He continues to trust in the Lord and even asking for prayer, understanding the power of prayer and how it's able to work in our lives. So we come to a conclusion that to be troubled is not a lack of faith, but a testing of and a building up of faith. And so it's when you get to that point of trouble that you come to the realization, especially as you come to the understanding of what you're not able to do, the realization of what God is going to be able to do and what God does do built upon the promises. Now, trust always has to be built upon the promises of God. We don't just randomly trust. Well, to trust in the Lord, well, there is a problem with that. Not problem in trusting, but, you know, we can so easily use it as another piece of our Christianese. You have somebody who's troubled here, and they're in despair, and you, you, know, you come up and you say, hey, trust in God, and then you walk away. What have you just done to that person? I mean, was that really an encouragement that you offered them, or was it just a shield because you don't want to deal with it in case that happens to me? No, we are to trust in the Lord, but again, we've kind of made that part of our Christian jargon without really explaining it, without really examining it, without really dissecting it to truly understand what does it mean to trust in the Lord? Because everybody here's heart at some point in the future, your heart is going to be troubled. There's going to be deaths. There's going to be hardship. Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. 
Job chapter 5. That being the case, we're going to be troubled. Ought we not to be trained to deal with those times when we or somebody we're able to minister to has a troubled spirit? Well, the only way to trust in the Lord is through faith. You have to have faith, and faith is built up through the Word of God, but faith, you have to have faith that God cares. Do you really believe that God cares for you? If you forget, if you doubt, look to the cross. He cared enough to come and to die on the cross for you. We're going to get into it, obviously, as we march, as Christ marches to the cross, but he took your sin upon him. He who never sinned took your sin upon him so that you could have eternity. He cares to that degree. Faith we have to have faith that he hears, that we truly believe that he hears our prayers. Paul had that. Faith that God would hear in the midst of hardship, he'll hear my cry to him. The psalmist was very clear on that. He really understood it as many times we, we hear him just crying out in the midst of a hardship. We must have faith that he speaks to us, that as I'm troubled and, and it just seems like nothing is making sense, I can turn to that which does make sense. I can turn to the Word of God, and, and I should have a faith that God does speak to me through His Word. Now, I read through the one-year Bible, as I, I pointed out so many times. I know quite a few people in our church do. And I have to have that mindset, whether I'm reading about Joseph in Genesis, that God's going to speak to me through those situations and circumstances that went on so long ago. As I go into the Gospel, God's going to speak to me. Looking at Psalms, God's going to speak to me. Proverbs, wisdom. God's going to speak to me. Matter of fact, I remember, I don't remember why, obviously, God laid it upon my heart, but we'd started the church. We were about a year old, maybe two years old. I decided to teach through the Psalms. Now I look for commentaries, and I can't even find a commentary of somebody who teaches verse by verse through Psalms. But the Lord just laid it upon my heart, and I see why, because there's very practical application of theology in the Psalms. You've got this man, for the most part, David, and you see these things, you see the doubt. There's, there's areas where David even seems to be depressed, and all of these situations and circumstances that we deal with are dealing with, the, the psalmist is dealing with as well. And we see, I mean, there's a common pattern, there's some commonalities that we saw just about the majority of the psalms. If you read the first verse and the last verse, you'll get an idea of the totality of that psalm. A lot of the Psalms, as you finish a chapter and you go into the next chapter, you'll see one's a continuation of the other. And you'll see that there's usually the beginning, and you have the psalmist, and he's overwhelmed by a situation. You'll have somewhere in the middle that God will enter in, and then at the end, he's given glory to God. And so we see the reality and the practicality of these things. And you have to have faith that God cares, faith that he hears, faith that he speaks, and lastly, faith that he will act the understanding and the trust in God, knowing that whatever it is that I'm dealing with, that God's going to do a work in the midst of it. The problem is he's not going to work according to your timetable. He's going to work according to his timetable. And God can be very, very, very patient. Again, the question usually is, how long is this going to take? The answer is, just as long as God determines is as necessary. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Talking about the church in heaven, the church here on earth. 
that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to everything that is available to God, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Because again, it's when you're troubled, your heart, that God would strengthen you in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height to know the love of God. Now that's when you're in that troubled spirit and it seems like everything is just beyond you and out of your grasp, that's the one thing. You've got to know the love of God and then true trust and faith will build upon that and it will come back to you as you just dwell upon God's love and the love with which he had expressed to you. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That last part means that everything previous to it applies to you, to all generations. That would be us. And so these truths that we see contained in the scripture, they're not just here for stories or just for listening. They're for learning and they're for doing maybe I should even say before that, to receiving, that we would accept these things and understand he's not talking to them, he's talking to me, he's talking to us, he's talking to us even this place tonight. In my father's house are many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. As trust and promise go hand in hand, here we have the promise, I go to prepare a place for you. The Christian is to be of the mindset that earth is a place that we are visiting. Heaven is a place where we will be living. That's our destination. That's where we're headed to. Right now, this is just a journey. It's why we don't get bogged down with the world and the things of the world. How many times have you heard? How many times have you said, it's just going to burn? Well, guess what? It's just all going to burn. It is all going to burn. I mean, look at the things that you just had to have. I remember they were coming out, and I just had to have an Atari game station, whatever. I don't remember what they were even called, the Atari thing. You know, boop, boop, boop. You know, I had to have it because it was cutting edge. Now, well, actually, they kind of made a comeback, which is really weird. But, um, you know, just, just see how fast things change and how that which was so important at one time, really, you look back, and there's just no substance to it whatsoever. It's kind of what the preacher is looking at. And Ecclesiastes. And so we've got to understand truly where our focus is to be. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Now we had some company come over, some friends of us, ours, who had moved to Austin, Texas. They came over last week. My wife prepared a place for them. We've got our kids are gone, we got extra room, so she went in and she cleaned the room real well, changed the bed sheets, and just made it really nice. It was all prepared. And so you have to ask yourself, listening to what Jesus is saying, what preparation is necessary in heaven for us? I mean, what's missing? What's undone? No paint, no decor, no reservations, no renovation is necessary. This is the dwelling place of God. Well, there was only one thing one place of preparation that was necessary so that we would be able to come. And that was the front gate. It was stuck shut. It was stuck shut because of sin. 
See, that's the only preparation that was necessary for Christ to prepare, or, yeah, yeah, to Christ to pay the price for our sins, that that gate would be open wide for all humanity that has received him as their Lord and Savior. It was slammed shut because of sin, but now it's wide open because of the blood of the Lamb. Then because of all this, Jesus says, the last part of verse 3, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Also, Paul trusts in, in this. In 2 Corinthians, we're not going to turn there, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, he's looking at the tent. He's looking at his body. And the tent ain't what it used to be. It's fallen apart. There's some tears in the tent. If you recall, the apostle Paul was a tent maker, so he's using that illustration. But what's a tent? Does anybody here live in a tent? I've never lived in a tent. I know some people, they fall upon hard times and maybe do, but for the most part, tent's always been something temporary. That's what we would use when we went on vacation as I was a kid. We had a tent trailer, but the idea is the same. Maybe even a better illustration. It was something that was mobile, and it was something that was temporary. And so Paul's saying, I got this mobile, temporary tent here. It's starting to fall apart, but that's okay. I've got a temple in heaven. I've got this spiritual body that I can't even imagine. It's in heaven. And one day, I'll be absent from the body, but I'm going to be present in the Lord. And so all the hardships and all the difficulties that we deal with, seems like every single week there's some prayer request for cancer that is going on. All of these things... We've got some place that is so much better. So much better. And even on top of all of that, Jesus says he's going to come again and receive us unto himself. And so are we truly trusting in the promises of the Lord here? Understanding, especially in the midst of those troubled times, these promises that the Lord has given us. Because again, these guys have got, the apostles, have got to be just consumed with this stress. Because he's going away, what is to become of us? Well, Jesus is telling them. That's precisely what he's telling them. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. So he's telling them, this is necessary that I go, but I'm not just leaving you guys. I'm going to prepare it. You're still on my mind. Verse 3, and I go to prepare a place. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, and where I am, there you may be also. And so this is the truthfulness of God's word. The truthfulness of God's word will always depend upon the adherence to his promises, that he adheres to his promises. If you are able to trust in the Lord's word through faith, then you will see the reality of Christ dwelling in his glory. Each of the apostles, they got it later on. When they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were all willing to give their lives for this truth, what they know and understand to be these promises that were true, and they were validated by the sending of the Holy Spirit to such a degree that they all gave their lives. The Apostle John, tradition tells us that he was boiled in oil. He was willing to go to his death as well, although the Lord delivered him. But nonetheless, he still... He still gave of this life, his time here on earth to the glory of God. Jesus receiving us into himself, I think the best illustration of this is in Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through to the end of the chapter. We have the first martyr of the Bible, Stephen. Stephen's given of his life even at this point. He's got the gospel and he's prepared with the gospel 
when asked to give a reason for the hope that is within him. He's standing before these Jews. He probably knows that if he gives this testimony, his life is going to be required of him. But he also probably knows, I don't know to what degree, the Bible doesn't tell us, but Jesus went to prepare a place for him. And where Christ is, he's going to receive Stephen. Stephen's thinking this, at least has an understanding, obviously, that this is going to happen, that Jesus is going to receive him unto himself. It says in verse 54, the Jews, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. It, it just got them. It's like Stephen stuck that knife in there and twisted it, and they gnashed at him with their teeth, kind of like a ravenous dogwood. But he, being fill, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Well, if you look at Hebrews, Jesus isn't standing. It says he went up there and he's seated. So we see what causes the Lord to rise up to receive one of his unto himself. Verse 56, and he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, they didn't want to hear it, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. We know this to later on be the Apostle Paul. Verse 59, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I don't know to what degree that he was told of John chapter 14, but it seems very apparent to me that they told him or he read something or whatever, but he was well aware of what Jesus was speaking of back in John chapter 14. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He was able to forgive with the same forgiveness that was offered to him as he was forgive, forgiven undeserving he asked for them to be forgiven, although they did not deserve to be forgiven. Secondly, in meeting man in his distress, Jesus speaks of a truth concerning himself, verses 4 through 7, or at least 4 through 6. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how, we can, or how can we know the way. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except for me, except through me. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. Their heart is troubled, but Jesus is showing them where their hope is. Now again, the context of verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, nobody comes to the Father except through me, is built upon verses 1 through 5, and what Jesus is talking about, he's speaking of eternity or heaven, the dwelling place of God, and how man is going to get there. And so in verse 6, everybody should have that memorized. You should have that verse memorized. You should have the address memorized. Because anytime you're confronted by a cult or even an unbeliever, this is the ideal scripture for that. Anybody who has any other ideas or, or ways about them as far as eternity, heaven, or God, or whatever it might be, verse 6 is the most emphatic statement in the Bible. God wants the reader to know two things. First, there's no other way to heaven but one. There's no other way. The only other ways are those who mistrust God. Those who trust God, trust God because of the truth. Those who mistrust God do so because of a lie. And so there's no other way to heaven but one. You'll hear even the Pope 
many roads lead to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. I'm not coming up against Pope and Catholicism. I'm coming up against those who speak contrary to the Scriptures. There are not many ways that lead to heaven. Jesus said it, and the Bible is very clear. If there's other ways that lead to heaven, the Bible is not true. The Bible's emphatic about it. We can be emphatic about it as well. So first, there's no other way into heaven but one. And second, Jesus is it. Now, you have God, and if God says there's no other way, and there's only way but one, he's not going to keep it a secret. It's been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. If the Bible is true, then all other ways that conflict with the Bible, they're false. It's the essence of what truth is. Anything contrary to truth is false. If it's not false, then your truth is false. And so we have to stand on that high ground of Jesus Christ being the way. And we cannot open any false door for anybody else being the way or this starts falling apart. The Bible starts falling apart like a stack of dominoes. We've got to stand on that high ground, and we've got to defend it. Kind of narrow-minded, and we've been called narrow-minded, and Jesus spoke to that in Matthew seven thirteen through 14. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way. You have to die to yourself, which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And so again, Genesis, we see Adam. Man's walking with God. Adam is walking in God's ways. He's receiving of God's truth, and he's living a spiritually perfect life until sin enters in. And then you have the rest of the Bible that is working towards the cross of Christ. Now, just to stick Jesus Christ upon the cross, well, God's going to give us an explanation on that. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Because remember, what's happening here, we're picking up the pace. He's hours away from his crucifixion. So he's giving very poignant lessons of what they're about to see as he was upon that cross. And, and, and underline it if you need to, but Jesus says, I am. He's not just saying, I'm a way. He's saying, I am the way. Now, that word the, it means as in, the one and only. I am the way. I am the truth. He is the one and only truth and the one and only life. So I want to close tonight's study by looking at the three descriptions we have here of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, he is the way. This insinuates two points of a necessary plan of travel. We know these points to be the sinful state of man and fellowship with the Father. It just simply makes sense. If you're going from point A and you're going to point B, you have to take the way that is going to get you there. If you don't recognize either of these points or the way, then you're going to be searching for the rest of your life and you're never going to be finding. But upon recognizing these two points, the next question has to be, which way is it that I take? Now, you have a couple of options. Two of them aren't going to get you there, but so many people have used these options, so we'll just look at them very quickly. First, you can develop your own way. You can do what is right in your own mind, what is right in your own heart. And how many people do that? I mean, you know, you'll try to share the word. Listen, you know what, I, I, I speak to God. I, I'm all right. And really what they're doing is they've made some sort of false God in their own mind about God would never send anybody to hell. And, 
you know, all creation gets into heaven, whatever it might be. But the Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs, has spoken about it, 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, upon arrival, is the way of death. That's the way Judas took. Or, if you're not going to take your way, you can choose someone else's way. And there's a lot of ways out there. There's a lot of ways out there. Problem is, they don't take you from point A to point B. A lot of them don't recognize point A, the sinful state of man. And they don't even recognize, really, point B, the dwelling place of God. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 through 19, For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, because they're circumventing the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. They're more concerned about the things here of the world than they are point B, where we are going to end up. They don't consider that. So you can choose your own way, somebody else's way, or you can choose Jesus Christ is your way. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, nor is there salvation than in any other name under heaven among which men must be saved. Secondly, he is the truth. The way I choose depends upon the truthfulness of achieving its desired results. I've seen the peace that surpasses understanding. I've experienced it. I've seen it in the lives of others. Christ, well, he fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, and he was crucified. He ascended to heaven. But really what I've seen that has been touchable and tangible was the sending of the Holy Spirit. I've seen the Holy Spirit in the people of our church, and I've experienced the Holy Spirit within myself as well. These things that all lend towards truth and having that that, that, that dependency upon truth, or at least the ability to have a dependency upon these things, because they have come to know that these things are true. Now, you look at some of the religions of the world, and we're not going to go through all of them, but Mormonism teaches that you're going to be a god. Do you really think that you're going to be a god? I mean, come on. But they bought the lie. They bought the lie, and that's what they're dependent upon. They're looking forward to having their own planet one day in which they will be the god over. And we can laugh at that if it wasn't so sad and so many people were deceived. Thirdly, he is the life. He is the means by which mankind is able to have eternal life. John, in his first epistle, chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. See, notice how clear he's stating it. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. He's wanting you to know so that you're not going to be troubled. He states it a little bit different, so that your joy would be full. It's here that we arrive at a fork in the road. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Every human being stands at this fork of the road and contemplates which way they're going to go. There is the way of darkness, and the majority are going to go to that fork of the road, and they're going to take the way of darkness. We need to look at this just just for a moment. Why would anybody choose this way? I mean, who's going to see a marvelous light in darkness and decide to take the road to darkness? Well, the problem is it's baited by what the world has to offer and appeals to the flesh. 
Have you ever had a waitress hand you a hot plate? Don't touch that. It's hot. What do you do? You touch it. I've done it. It's like, ow, yeah, that is hot. You know, it, it, it's just kind of this silly dynamic of, of a human being that doesn't like to be told what to do. And man doesn't like to be told what to do, and he goes his way or somebody else's way. It's down that path of darkness. Why would anybody wander down that path of darkness? Well, John has previously told us, John three nineteen through 20. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And so you have this man who stands at the fork. There's the dark, there's the light. This light is a light that he has never seen before. It's a light that illuminates who he is. Now, he spent a light in an unsafe state. He spent his lifetime trying to hide who he is. He's built up facades. He's done whatever is necessary so people won't really see the true man. And if he understands, if I go down that path, not knowing God, if I go down that path, I'll be illuminated for who I am. And so he takes the way of darkness. He takes the way of darkness, and he's no different than Judas as he goes out into outer darkness. And there's that other direction of the split that does go into God's marvelous light. Instead of darkness, it's an illuminated cross that displays the love of God for all of humanity. And it's what the Father uses to draw mankind down that path. Revelation 3, 21 through 22, to him who overcomes, who overcomes the attraction of the darkness, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Father, I pray that you would truly give us an ear to hear and a mind, Lord, to digest these things and to understand these things. Not just to know these things, Lord, but to embrace these things so that when troubling times come and troubling times are going to come, that, Father, as our faith is tested, that it would be found to be pure in your sight. And so, Lord, teach us these concepts so that when the hardship does come, that, yeah, there's going to be the downtime, but eventually we will be able to prevail. And so, Lord, you know the hearts of all of men. We're told that in John chapter 2. You knew the hearts of the apostles, even as they were sitting before you at that time. They had just been arguing who's going to be the greatest. But now they realize that as you're leaving, Lord, their hope is fading, but in actuality, their hope is going to be built up greater than it has ever been. And so, Father, I pray that you will continue to do that good work in our lives, that we would be open to receiving of it, and the better for it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? A couple of things. The high schoolers are going away tomorrow. Some people are going to be happy about that in this room. Um, they're going on their retreat, so lift them up in prayer. Pray that they travel safely. Uh, there's no longer chains necessary. The roads are clear but nonetheless pray that they travel safely. Pray as they are up there that they would be upstanding Calvary Chapel, Ontario citizens, that they would not bring shame to the name of our church or their name of their family. But no, pray that the Lord meets them there. Seriously, God wants to do a life-changing work in their lives this weekend. Pray that they're open to that and we see that come about. Uh, the couple's dinner, you can sign up for that. That's going to be in February 18th. And then the woman's retreat is the beginning of March. But Penny told me just before service, we have 16 places left. So 
If you haven't get, gotten signed up for that, make sure you get signed up for that. Other than that, oh, keep me up in prayer. Seriously, I'm going to teach at the high school retreat. And, you know, there's an old, gray, bald guy up there. Pray that I would be able, seriously, pray that I would be able to deliver the word to them in a way that they'd be able to receive it. I'm looking forward. I'm excited about it. I don't know how excited they're going to be to see me. But keep it up in prayer. God bless you guys.